everybody. Welcome to the Meteoric Observer Podcast. This is Josh. Very excited today. Uh, we've got a special guest that I'm, I've been eager to talk to for a bit here. He's the host of the MindShift Podcast. This fellow holds a PhD in theology, so he knows some stuff. Uh, former, uh, uh, former elder in a church and former pastor, currently writing a book called Baptism, Third Times a Charm, My Story of Deconversion from Christianity. Uh, I just can't wait to talk about how much we love religion. It's uh, Clint Haycock. <laughs> how you doing, Clint? Thanks for joining us. Yeah, hi, Josh. Great to be here. Um, I'm just really excited to see where this whole conversation is going to go. <laughs> hey, me too, <laughs> man. <laughs> yeah. So, so thank you so much for joining me. It's you know, I'm I'm a bitter old angry uh, you know atheist and have been for <laughs> some time, but I I'm not. I'm not, you know, learned in, in any of these topics. Um, I've never, you know, risen to any level of leadership within any religious organizations. Um, I've certainly have not, don't have any degrees um, in, in world religions. So it's, it's great to talk to, to somebody who has some, some actual practical knowledge and experience a little deeper in this um, that maybe, maybe has some similar views as I do. So that'll be interesting. Um, one thing yeah. I want to ask yeah. So now real quick, you're joining us from England, right? That's true. I live in, well, in the Northwest of England, North Wales area. If anyone's seen that documentary on Disney plus called welcome to Wrexham where Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhaney bought the football club or soccer club. Uh, I live about 10 minutes from Wrexham. So I'm right in that area. <clears throat> well, I appreciate you joining us from all the way across the pond and for coordinating with an odd uh, time shift here. <laughs> So yeah, but I do most of my recordings at this time anyway, because most of my guests are from the States anyway. So I'm very used to recording at seven, eight, nine at night, my time. Okay. Okay. So, so I want to ask one thing that, that to me comes up when I think about talking about religion, man, I am, uh, you know, I'll be honest. I mean, I'm, I'm angry. I'm angry at organized religion. I'm angry, particularly mm -hmm. at Christianity. I'm angry at those who have historically, propagated it in the grand sense. Um, I get I get upset these days at at individuals who who continue particularly not as much people who really believe, but people who sort of passively pass down the, these generationally, you know, sort of indoctrinated ideas. Um, and, and that's for a number of reasons. But but, you know, to put it simply, I just find it terribly damaging to our society. And mm. and I and I get upset by this. Um, I do want to say real quick, just a stat. Um, I can't speak to England, but in America, <clears throat> excuse me, roughly sixty three percent of Americans identify as Christian. Okay, uh, one point three percent is Muslim, two point two percent is Jewish, uh, about three point one percent is atheist, four percent is agnostic, and then there's you know Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, some other other stuff that, that's smaller numbers than that. Um, down there, but overwhelming majority, 63% identify as Christian in America. This is the, 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 the religion that I most often see sort of showcased. I see used mm -hmm. in politics. I see, um, I, I see that happening. What, first of all, you, you came up in this, were you raised, were you raised Christian? Were you raised Catholic? Were you raised in some particular religious orthodoxy? How did you how did oh, you yeah. find yourself here? I was raised in church from day one. I grew up in the Seattle, Washington area, 
that's where I lived all my life pretty much. And then I was raised in this church. It was, I would say now it was pretty fundamentalist, which is sort of like on the far right of conservative, you know, as opposed to more of a liberal church, it was pretty fundamentalist. And I was raised in it from day one. So this is what I talk about in my book. I was actually baptized, not once, not twice, but three times in my quest to get it right. You know, so that's how seriously I took it all the way up till when I was an adult. I was in Bible college and seminary. That's when I had my third baptism, you know, so I spent all my adult life in either church or in ministry or in teaching at a Bible college. So, you know, I was all in a hundred percent from day one. And so, and your, your parents were religious? Oh yeah. Yep. They were raised in, and I, I say now I was raised in a cult as well. I go further now because if anyone's seen that series, Shiny Happy People on Amazon Prime, if you've seen that, you'll understand the kind of context I was raised in. It's all about this guy. His name is, was Bill Gothard. He's actually still alive, but he had a group called the Institute in Basic Youth Conflicts when I was a kid. It was a nationwide seminar, and he would come to town. There'd be five, six, seven thousand people. We'd go to the Seattle Center, and there would be people hanging on his every word and everything. And this is the documentary. It's about the Duggar family. If you are familiar with the Duggars, 19 kids and counting or 21 kids and counting or however many kids, they subscribe. They, they've to lost count. Offer. They've literally lost yeah. count at this yeah. point. So they just weigh but, them. They get on a scale. Oh, I guess yeah. <laughs> One more kid. But the Duggars are, were the poster family for Bill Gothard's sort of cult. I would say it's a cult. And they talk about it in the documentary. And that's what I was raised in. <clears throat> Even though I wasn't homeschooled like a lot of the kids in that movement we were raised in you know, Christian schools, Christian church. It was a complete Christian bubble. We were in the whole thing, Christian summer camp. You know, Every time you turned around, you were in a Christian sort of context. Yeah. So, so I, I want to talk about that. There is one of the things I've, I've observed in my life in America is, in, in my view, it is very easy for people to use justifications uh, for for people to justify taking their kids to say religious schools, often sure. you know sometimes they're they're better money, they have better programs, they you know um, maybe they're just a nicer facility or, or whatever it may be, and they are willing to sort of passively sign off and that well we're not really religious but you know what's it going to hurt and, and they wind up sort of <laughs> passively going down that road or maybe it's a Christian yeah. summer camp or you know go what's go the ahead. Worst that could happen. What's the worst that could happen? <laughs> yeah. um, and, and so even though they don't have an actual interest, it's so normal, it's so common, even if they don't believe these, these things themselves, they're willing to sort of passively pass mm -hmm. it down or, or, you know, allow their children to maybe be a little bit saturated in it. <clears throat> now, yep. the reason I care, the reason I, I, I get, I, I think, upset by this um, and upset and am upset with us for this is... It is, I am not confused. It is human nature. It is, it is human nature to ask the biggest questions ever. Who is God? What is God? Is God? I mean, it is, yeah. there is isn't there a one, God? Is there God? There isn't one among us yeah. who hasn't been enchanted by that starlit night, by our own fingertips, by our own relationship with the planet and the cosmos, and went, what is all this? Who made all this? What, you know, yeah. and, and to me, that is about as close to, and I'm air quotes, God, as mm -hmm. most of us might ever get is that sheer awe and wonder at life and, and at all of it. Right. Mm -hmm. And then some motherfucker, you know, comes up 
<laughs> and it's, I, I tend to think it's usually right around seven, eight years old, you know, and, and starts telling you this fairy tale. And I absolutely believe it to be this, you know, fantastical, you know, fairy tale um, and begins planting seeds. And, and among those is, is one of the most, you know, concerning things about Christianity and its basic principles to me is, is inherent that you ought not question any farther. We, mm. we are, you know, capitalize on this age old question that every person in every civilization has ever asked. And then we walk up and say, here's the answers. And don't you dare question it. Don't you dare doubt it or mm. else it's <clears throat> gnashing of teeth and lakes of fire for you. Yeah, and for we eternity. are teaching for eternity. We are teaching yeah. people to be afraid of something that up until that point, they would have never conceived they could possibly be afraid of eternal mm. damnation. That's not something most of us are born worrying about. That is not a that is not a natural born fear. That is something we we adopt, we accept from somebody who teaches us that that's a thing. And my biggest concern with what that does to society is it's such a limiting belief system. It, it mm. stops us from philosophizing. It stops us from asking. It stops us from tearing down those ideological structures and rebuilding them from studs and going, what do I believe? Is that valid? Is that serviceable? Why do I think that? You know, Because we're afraid not to. And I believe mm. there's a lot of these 63% of Americans who identify as Christian who don't really at their core believe most of these things or a lot of these things, but they are terrified not to because somewhere deeply embedded in their psyche is this hellfire and brimstone. Don't you dare, you know, and there's, <laughs> yeah. you'll even hear people say, well, what if I'm wrong though? What if I'm wrong? You know, what if the Bible yeah. was right? Oh, and that's what concerns me is I think it keeps us, it keeps us from asking. It keeps us from searching. It keeps us from seeking. It is a cap on critical thinking. And I see that play out in our electorate. I see that play out yep. in our society. Oh, absolutely. What do you think about that? I mean, how, what does that do to our, our whole life, our approach to life? Yeah. Is there so many things in what you just said? I mean, how do, how do you unpack it? Uh, on the one hand, like you say, taking a kid, I think it's a form of abuse, basically. And I, I experienced it when I was a kid. I went to vacation Bible school, VBS, and my parents thought it was a good idea. You know, I was five years old. And they're sitting there with the flannel graphs in the living room and all that, talking about how I'm going to go to hell if I didn't believe in Jesus, you know. And I see that now. That is basically what's called religious trauma syndrome, which is a thing. If anyone's interested in that, you need to look up uh, Dr. Marlene Winnell. She's written some really good resources. She she coined that term religious trauma syndrome or RTS. So that's one aspect. You get a bunch of generations of kids that grow up with religious trauma syndrome because of, like you said, the fear of hell. And I, I thought I was going to miss the rapture when Jesus came back and called all the believers to heaven. And, you know, it was all these traumas that I lived with as a kid. But then there's another aspect, like you talked about, the sort of stealth approach. If anyone's interested, there's a really good book by uh, someone called Catherine Stewart. It's called The Good News Club. And it's basically about the subtitle is something like the Christian rights stealth assault on America's public schools. And it starts out with this good news club, which is in so, I mean, thousands of public schools, elementary schools all across America. Now, that sounds good, doesn't it? Don't you want your kid to go to a good, good news. news club? It's good news. <laughs> Josh, it's good news, man. Oh, I and can't it's wait. fun activities. We've got brownies and cookies and, and something to drink for the kids, games. But then here comes this gospel, quote unquote, message. 
and they're using public school facilities. They get funding grants from the government. And when she started delving into their actual message and what they do, she's like, my God, these, these people have, have, you know, brought the Christian gospel, a fundamentalist gospel right into public schools, you know, and she just, and it goes from there. And if you read the book, you'll be on the one hand, horrified, <laughs> terrified, and angry as well, that this is all going on in America right now. Sure. Yeah. And it's all publicly funded. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, there are some states in our union right now that are trying to strip away actual literature and, and get Bibles in to the classroom. Yeah. So, we, you know, we want to well, get rid of most books, but Bibles, that's, there we go. Let's yeah. do that, you know. That's another movement where they're trying to ban a whole lot of, quote unquote, objectionable books from public libraries. You know, Moms for Liberty, that's another group. The Christian right, I mean, they've got all these sort of different arms and groups and political action groups and lobbying groups and all that, but... If you if people look up the Moms for Liberty, they're a group. I think they're out of Florida, and it's these women that are trying to ban books from public libraries. You know, and they're they're all up in arms about these certain books. You know, that that feature, let's say, LGBTQ plot lines or characters or whatever. It's going to ruin America's children. You know, they're going to turn them all gay. Turn, turning them gay. Know? Turning them gay. Yeah, that's how gay yeah. works. I don't know if you knew that, but if you yeah. hear about gay, you turn gay. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <Or> you <laughs> have to be careful drive. talking about it. Yeah, a drag queen who reads a story to a group of school children and they're all going to become, you know, they're all going to go gay. I mean, that's the fear mongering and the, like you said, the sort of terror tactics, you know, but this goes back a long time. Uh, you know, the Christian right has been using fear and terror tactics to motivate their base, which has basically become Trump's base. Now, that's if you, if you trace it over the long haul back in into the days of Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan and all the evangelicals. It goes back to the mid '70s, so it's it's a long it's been a long time coming, really. Yeah, and and it's isn't not, it's it not I, a new thing? And isn't it ironic? You know, and and that's a great example. And we don't have to get too deep into this, but you know, Trump being sort of the the presumptive recipient of the evangelical vote sounds just yep. absurd on yeah. its face right like yeah. really i mean you look really? at a guy like like biden who's a devout catholic for all of his <laughs> life that we've all watched and and then yeah but, but trump's really garnering that evangelical for what for why in what realm you know and that's and i do yeah. want to talk about that how how religion has been co-opted and perverted by the political po politically powerful and, and and effectively is being twisted in such a way as to get people who who believe they're voting in alignment with with was God's will or you know what would Jesus yeah. do or these these leaders that purport to be you know the evangelical you know political leaders but but when you look at it on its face as far as what the results of some of these policies are it's, it's hard to see them as christ-like certainly it's hard to see them you know <laughs> yeah. and, and that's and that's of course an age-old objection too right the difference between yeah. you know uh, christ and many of his followers you know what what we mm. what, what we read about what you know how christ lived and who he served and what he devoted yeah. his life to what versus he stood for. Yeah, versus what yeah. we see in so many of his the people who claim him. Yeah, so, would he recognize the church of today, as it were? You know, that's that's the question, isn't it? If if Jesus existed, and there's a whole there's a whole another issue there. 
are the gospels reliable and all that that's a whole different you know kettle of fish but yeah i know what you're saying isn't that gandhi something that gandhi said something like you know i love your jesus i just don't like his followers you know i don't <laughs> something to the effect of you know this idea of this jesus i'm 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 kind of for that but christians hell no i'm not not doing it so let me just ask you that i mean what is the Bible in your view? Is, is it a straight up work of fiction? Is it a carefully choreographed plot to control? Is it the result of generations of bastardization, misrepresentation, poor translation? Was it purely bad intention from the beginning? Was it a, a, a diabolical plan by the ruling elite to begin to funnel <laughs> people into a line of thinking? Or has this just been co-opted by those folks? You know in your view, yeah, there's a lot to that question. I mean, that's obviously we could spend hours just talking about the Bible and translations and and tr manuscript traditions and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I'll put it this way: when I was an evangelical, my view was that the Bible was 100% inspired. That means it was without error. There was no mistakes in it, from you know Genesis to Revelation. And we held the Bible, and most evangelicals do. They hold the Bible up, you know, on a high pedestal. They actually, in a way, they kind of almost worship the Bible because it's like a, it's almost like a magical book. It's got all the answers for life's problems. And you want to find out how to get to heaven and how to become a Christian and all the rest of it. Read the Bible. I mean, Mike Johnson just said this the other day, the new speaker of the house. Someone asked him, I think it was on Fox News, what's your worldview? And he basically said, well, if you want to know what my worldview is, go pick up a Bible, read it. And that's what it is. That's how I find out the answers to everything. You know, so that's a very common view. So that was the view I had. You know, but now I would say that the Bible is a book written by humans, but it's like you said, it's been co-opted because this whole thing about the church taking sort of political power, that that goes all the way back to the Roman Empire, you know, Constantine and all the way through medieval times, the Catholic Church. So the American evangelical thing co-opting the Bible, that is not by any stretch a new thing. It goes back a couple thousand years, you know, so the Roman Catholic Church they had complete political and religious hegemony through through all the you know in Europe for hundreds and hundreds up till the Re Reformation in the 1500s. You know, so it's nothing new. You know, so you can use the Bible to basically make it say whatever you want to say, depending on your interpretation. If you want to take political dominion, you can find that in there, and people do, and that's what you know empowers guys like Mike Johnson and and other people, those you know evangelical Trump mega types. Well, and, and it certainly seems that religion and, you know, is quite convenient for ruling elite folks sure. who would prefer for the surf class to stay in their lane and, and yep. not buck the system. Um, I had the, uh, the joy of visiting Croatia not too long ago and got to go check out the Diocletian Palace where Diocletian ruled the Roman Empire from. And, mm -hmm. and this was one example of where your head of state was also your one path to God. Mm -hmm. There was no light between church and state. They were the same. Yep. And of course, there, you know, we had the, the 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 people can't read the scripture problem. We had, you know, all of these things. And so you're heavily reliant, uh, you know, on your head of state, your head of church to tell you uh, what it says, what it means, how you can apply that to your life. Sure. And it is convenient when, <clears throat> you know, particularly it is, it is reported that there's, you know, such value in being poor and, and being humble and being, you know, um, mm -hmm. and this, this sort of charitable yeah. life that you give and give and give and give when that's being pushed to the, the poor, you know, lower class people, 
how convenient if they can believe that that's God's will for them. Absolutely. But I, I have been anointed by God to lead you guys. So I'm also doing God's work. I'm just here at the throne with the palace, you know, but yep. you guys, um, and, and it is, it's at, at best, it seems clear it's, it's been co-opted over, over the years, if not designed yep. for the co-opting. You know, well, and it seems to be human nature because, like you said, religion and humanity—they're—they're they're inseparable. Every culture, no matter where, how far back you go, no matter where you in the world you go, humanity—we're incurably religious. There's always that sense of, like you were talking about, questing for the divine and the gods, and how did things work? Why did my crops fail? It must have been the gods who cursed me, or and I've got to find. It. So as soon as you set up that dynamic where you've got, let's say, a deity that we can't reach, we don't know anything about him or or her. Now you've got a priesthood class, sort of a, a, a mediator class through which you, you the, the supplicant, have to go to get to the divine. Once you set up that power structure dynamic, and every, every culture has that basic dynamic, I, as the worshiper, I've got to go to the temple. I've got to ask the priest or the wise holy man, how do I appease the gods? Well, let me tell you, here's what you need to do, A, B, C, D, do this sacrifice, do this obeisance or whatever it might be. So that's, if you look at Christianity in that same dynamic, it, the same principles apply, don't they? You've got this God, you've got pastors and preachers and all that. You've got to go through them to get, you know, to go to church and get get salvation. So the same dynamic applies, I think. It's just human nature, it seems to be. And then there's always someone who wants to take advantage of that. So there you go. Yeah. Yeah. So, so speaking of, uh, you know, looking at the Bible as gospel air quotes, right. Um, mm -hmm. that's, that's how much we rely on the Bible. We have a whole saying that we, <laughs> well, yeah. we take that as gospel, you know? Um, yeah. so recently, and I, and I promise I'm not going to try to corner you on solving Middle East peace problem. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I've seen some pretty gross stuff, uh, out there on social media from folks that I would kind of lump in with evangelicals or, you know, claiming, you know, people that claim a Christian affiliation. Um, <clears throat> and there's a few, there, there's, you know, quite a few passages and we'll talk about a couple of them, but, but one that really got me, there is um, a passage, Luke 21, 20, and, and it's, you know, there, this is one of the versions is when you see Israel surrounded by enemies on all sides, the end is near is a, is a, mm -hmm. a bridge version of it. There's a lot of different versions of that. This is an example to me of current day, present day people leaning on fairy tales to justify and or almost um, rejoice at the at the slaughter of innocent people um, because we are you know leaning on our on our religious texts that that we would claim to be moral doctrine to justify amoral behavior of at best not giving a shit about the lives of people and at worst being pleased because we believe that that this is where the end of days you know the spark that will turn into you know mm -hmm. will ultimately Armageddon. result in my rapture right yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm ready for god to come snap me out of here so yeah two-thirds of the jews are gonna have to die that's all right because one third will convert and then hey i get to go you know yeah, it's all and, good and it, it's all you know it's all good news except for those two-thirds who die but you know what that's that that's must be god's plan it must be yeah. god's plan and it just seems I guess you, 
it seems like an easy way to divorce yourself present day reality and from the plight of your fellow humans Mm -hmm. um, and grab your popcorn and and sit back and and wait for the for the rapture. And it seems born of, of delusion and of being having been duped into this bizarre way of of thinking. And I guess it, it seems to me that you can't simultaneously be preoccupied with the afterlife and be present for this life and the people in it. Um, yep. the, this belief system seems to prioritize one's own eternal salvation over the well-being of one's own fellows on this plane. And I, I believe Jesus may have said a thing or two about doing good works. And it seems hmm. to me here now is where good works can be done. It's the only place they can be done. We've mm-hmm. got to be here now to be of service to those about us. And if we're just going to kick back and watch the slaughter, because we can't mm-hmm. wait to be swept away ourselves, it's just so fucking gross. And it seems so antithetical to what it seems to me. I would just sort of imagine that the followers of, of the figure that I've come to associate with Christ would, would go, yeah, that's it. That's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> but isn't it convenient and easy? I mean, am I am I too far off there? Are we just tricking ourselves into sort of abdicating our responsibility to do good works here today in favor yeah. of this imaginary later thing? I don't think so because, yeah, there's a lot of what you just said. I mean, it's the same kind of dynamic that where a lot of Christians, a lot of evangelicals, they don't care about the environment because their argument is, why, why should we care? Because we're going to be raptured out of here. God's going to destroy this world and create a whole new one anyway. So what, why bother? I mean, really, why, you know, why do we care? And it's the same dynamic. I mean, what, what empowers a lot of that is something called Christian Zionism. I don't know if you've come across this, but in America, this idea that Israel, you know, they're the chosen people of God. That's clearly what the Bible says. They were the chosen people in the Old Testament, blah, blah, blah. You know, so they've, they've kind of turned away from God. They're a kind of a secular state, but someday in the future, as you said, all Israel is going to repent. This is all these prophecies in the book of Revelation and Daniel, places like that. And so Christian Zionism is massive in America. There are huge groups that they take tours around Jerusalem and Israel. They, they are just waiting for all these events to happen, to unfold. And when they see a war kickoff, like in Gaza, like you said, that's what they're like, oh, this could be it. This could be the precursor to Armageddon. This could be the end of the world. I mean, I remember when the first Gulf War went on, what was it, 1991, something like that, and evangelicals were freaking out when the uh, Saddam Hussein started lobbing missiles into Israel, thinking, okay, this is going to start you know, the end of the world. Well, I was a pastor during those, that time. I remember people walking into my church off the streets. One guy knocked at my office door just during the middle of the week and said, Look, Pastor, I need some help here, man. Is this the end of the world? Is this, you know, is this what's going on? Is this Armageddon? And he wasn't even a Christian, but he he was so infused with all this prophetic nonsense. Here's this guy coming to a church trying to, you know, find a pastor to give him some answers, man. You know, so that's how deep some of this stuff runs, really. Crazy. Yeah. And isn't it interesting also to think that we we are living in a way that if it is the end of the world, why better hurry up and repent? Because I've been that's a real right. piece of shit, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, which why, is basically why? what he was saying. Because if yeah. I had turned around and said, hey, man, yes, this is the end of the world. You better get your shit together, man. Repent, get right with God. You know, um, And I didn't believe that it was at the time. And I gave him some reasons. why I said it could be, but it probably isn't. And it doesn't meet certain criteria in the Bible. And, you know, because I was that was my go-to book as well. 
you know, so we sat there and cracked open the Bible and looked at the prophecies and I'm like, you know, it doesn't really fit and whatever, but yeah, you're right. There's a lot of evangelicals right now that are kind of rejoicing over this thing in Israel and Gaza because they're thinking this is it. This is the precursor to the end of the end of days and Jesus is going to be coming back soon and it's going to be amazing and wonderful. Yeah. And so, and, and for those of our listeners who are, you know, I mean, I, I grew up in the eighties. I mean, there has never been a sustained peace in this region since I've been alive. I, I think to a lot of Americans, this, this, confusing, you know, I don't really understand the names. I don't really understand the various sects and, and uh, peoples that occupy the area. And it's just this big mishmash of over there, but it's this very tumultuous, yeah. volatile area, right? Um, in, in the Muslim tradition, um, the the Quran repeatedly refers to Palestine as a holy land or a blessed land for Muslims with passages such as, mm-hmm. oh, my people enter the holy land, which Allah has destined for you and do not turn back. A lot of Muslims view Palestine as their land based on this text and Judaism in the, in the Torah. um, There's actually a passage in Deuteronomy. um, uh, Go, go in and take possession of the land. The Lord swore he would give to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to their descendants after them. Uh, This, this is again, this, this promise from this ancient Mm -hmm. text to the Jewish people. Um, And then, uh, you know, like like we mentioned, a lot of Christians view you know the uh, total Jewish control of Palestine will precipitate the end of times and the second coming of Jesus. Uh, during Armageddon, two thirds of the Jews will be slaughtered, the rest converted, and it shall come to pass that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left. The third shall be left therein, and shall call on my name, and I will hear them. I will say, it is my people, and they shall say, the Lord is my God. And that's from mm. Zechariah. So. Yep. You've okay. done your homework. Well, I mean, a tiny bit. I mean, it's, again, <laughs> to me, man, it's all trash. You know, we are all referring <laughs> to these thousands of year old yep. texts as the basis yeah. of present day real estate transactions. Okay. Mm-hmm. Man, we, we can go the world over and talk about the absolutely atrocious acts, whether it be of the Christian crusaders or the Romans or Mother England or any of the people who have conquered and, and taken mm-hmm. land in Americans, so that the European settlers in America just raping the land away from the native. I mean, man, Australia yeah. and an Aboriginal. Yeah. Oh, you can't, you know, so, so that is a whole entire thing. Yep. Well, what seems to be, con- to me, continuing to fuel this this particular thing is is these religious texts that go so much deeper, so much farther into your your core than um, maybe current political uh, you know agendas or you know current uh, real estate you know uh, pricing or any of that sort of stuff. This is mm-hmm. you know this is this deep seated belief that. God gave us this this land. Um, yep, sacred to- space. Yeah. that's what they call it. Um, the sacred space. Anytime, anytime anyone says this is a sacred space, like a church or a mosque or a synagogue, then someone's got a stake. To, you know, there's a stake there, isn't there? So that's one way to view the 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 actual land of Israel today. You could say it's a sacred space to Christians, Jews, and Muslims, all three of whom claim Abraham as their sort of spiritual father. 
you know, they, they have different traditions, obviously, but they're all fighting. And they've been fighting for thousands of years over the same chunk of real estate, haven't they? Then you compound that with, you know, it was like you talked about colonization. It was a British colony. They they basically formed the modern state of Israel. What was it in 1948? Not long after World War II, to give a homeland to the Jews that a lot of them had survived the Holocaust and and what had gone on in Germany and, and Europe after World War II. You know, so Britain bears a lot of the responsibility for this current mess that we're in now. There's people that were already living there, and they're like, no, you know what? We're just going to give this to the Jews. This is going to be Israel now. And when I was an evangelical. You know, we we saw that as a fulfillment of prophecy. Absolutely. The nation of Israel was reborn, Joshua. Don't you get it, man? That's the beginning here. Okay. It, it's come back together after being scattered all over the world. And clearly God is in this thing, you know. So even that was interpreted as a sign of a fulfillment of prophecy. The end of the days is coming. The fact that Israel was a, a modern state again in 1948, you know. So everything can be interpreted to fit that sort of agenda. And again, it's it's this agenda from, you know, eons ago, and we're just, mm -hmm. you know, keep hearkening back to, to these <laughs> dubious texts, you know, as yeah. as how how we're going to do this today. Um, so it it seems to me that in addition to being an indoctrination into, I would say, living in a world full of alternative facts. Right, living in a in a world divorced from reality and into I, I call them fairy tales, but uh, you know, in addition to to being your indoctrination into some some level of farcical thinking, it, it's also and I think you alluded to this. It's it's got to be difficult if you're say a politician um, or if you're just a voter to get particularly concerned about things like healthcare reform climate change, mm -hmm. uh, you know, any yep, of these the bigger, yeah, tougher to tackle issues when you quite literally believe that the Jeebus is calling you home pretty soon here. I mean, <laughs> why would we do that? Why would we get all wrapped around the yeah. axle about these present day concerns? And, and that's, that's concerning, right? When we've got people at the top making decisions and, and appear to be legislating in such a way that is antithetical to looking out for what's happening now here in this world for the people that are here now or the people that will be here later. And, and is it possible they're in part doing that because they don't give a shit. They, they believe they're riding the rocket ship out of here. Well, but there's another nuance to this whole thing. We haven't talked about that. We've the, the issue of Christian nationalism. Now that's a whole nother piece because most of these politicians, or evangelical politicians, God, like Mike, Mike Johnson, Mike Pence, people like that, they are fueled and driven by the belief in Christian nationalism. And that's another piece we haven't talked about. And the, this is the idea that America was founded to be a Christian nation, uh, as a Christian nation, by the founding, the pilgrims and the founding fathers. We've strayed from that path. We've lost, we've gone into sin. So, you know, abortion, Roe versus Wade, allowing same-sex marriage, you know, the you know, free sex, the, all the rest of it, drugs and everything else. Legalization is, that, is that a new policy? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I missed that. <laughs> you must have missed that one. I think I missed it too, but uh, free love, summer love, you know? Yes. Uh, the, the argument goes, okay, we've strayed from that path, but what we need to do is get back to becoming a Christian nation again. So that was the driver behind the, the, this issue of overturning Roe versus Wade. So that's why they saw Trump as, okay, they could set their sort of ideals aside 
vote for the guy because he promised to deliver. And he did because he got three Supreme Court justices put on the bench, after which point then the legislation came in and it was overturned. And what it, they knew it was going to go to the Supreme Court. They knew it was going to win. And they fucking won. In their view, they won. Now, what did they win? They won, in air quotes, turning America back into a Christian nation again, where God is going to start blessing the nation again. We're going to go back to a golden age and everything else. So it's not necessarily that they don't, quote unquote, give a shit. They would say, oh, we we care so much so that we need to make America a Christian nation again. And then you'll see everyone will win. Even you, Josh, you're an atheist or an angry atheist or whatever you are. Even you will benefit when God starts blessing this country. A, a rising tide lifts all boats, you see. So that's their argument. So it's for everyone's good. If we outlaw Roe versus Wade, if we outlaw LGBTQ rights, everyone's going to win eventually, you know? And so that's a big driver of what goes on in this political arena now. Which is so funny. And there's so much irony in that because, mm -hmm. you know, obviously to start with the, the, what I believe is a false premise that there is such a thing as sin, you know, so already we're, yeah, we're still living in this there. bullshit reality that <laughs> there's some judgmental God waiting to, well, how's America behaving? You know, like, yeah. okay. He cares um, that much. <laughs> but even in the idea that that this rising tide, you know, lifts all boats, well, in order to raise the tide, we are actually sinking a number of yeah. people because yeah, a lot of people know, are for, dying. <laughs> yeah, for God to smile on us, well, first we're gonna have to make that 13-year-old rape victim give birth to that incest, you know, child, uh, you know, and probably die trying to carry it to term. So, you know, good looking out because because God's got so many yeah. blessings and it starts with things like that. And it's just mm -hmm. It seems bad. <laughs> it seems real, real bad. And and specifically, I was I noted the Dobbs decision. Um, yep. And the co-opting, what seems to me like a, and also the three hundred three creative decision, which was a Colorado case where uh, now uh, a website designer was given license to discriminate against doing gay wedding uh, websites, mm -hmm. yep. um, which flies in the face um, of laws that are on the books in in forty five states of public accommodations laws that you know say you if you're going to hang a shingle you can't say yeah but no blacks or no gays or no women yep. or you know but now you can. Now you can't. Yep. Uh, and that, that is the trajectory of this court. Um, and it seems to be fueled heavily by this evangelical support, which I, I can't help but think is being co-opted. I mean, again, I what, what little I know, what little I've read and, and been taught of Jesus the man. Again, if Jesus was real, if Jesus lived as he lived, you know, the, the behavior of this let's be honest, broke ass, hippie, charitable, <laughs> yeah. sort of just constantly yeah, guru type cruising around giving and nurturing and healing, yeah, healing and, people. Right. And, and the most wretched of the wretched, the most downtrodden of the downtrodden, the poorest of the poor. And yet his, his followers, his air quotes, followers are actually putting their feet on the necks of those people. Of mm -hmm. the poorest of the poor. That's the only thing these policies really impact, right? I mean, it's something like the Dobbs decision almost exclusively impacts poor women of color. Yep. Let's be it's honest. True. Those are the people it's who true. are mostly going to be unable to access abortion today. So mm -hmm. is that what Jesus would do? I, I, yeah. I don't think so. But again, I'm not a follower, so I don't know. But boy, it sure sounds antithetical to the compassion 
and um, you know, that I read about from the man. Yeah. Well, there's a couple of things in there. One is uh, which Jesus are you talking about? Because my friend, David Johnson, he has this podcast called the skeptics and seekers. And he does this. He wrote, he wrote a book called red letters and he goes in. His argument is actually when you break it down and look at what Jesus actually taught, a lot of the stuff was really problematic and you can't follow it. I mean, he said things like, for example, you know, if your eye offends you, if your eye causes you to stray into sin, you know, tear it out, cut your hand off if your hand, yeah, I mean, that's the words of a crazy man. That's, that's not this wise hippie guru who was like a, a loving guy, you know, and running around hate Ashbury in 1968, summer of love. This is like a nutty cult leader we're talking about. So there's another element there. But another aspect of this is that a lot of what Christianity is now and has become is not necessarily based on the quote teachings of Jesus. It's really Paul, the apostle Paul. So he, that would the, the letters of Paul were written before the Gospels. A lot of people think that because in the New Testament, the Gospels come first, and then you have all of Paul's letters, that the Gospels were written first, but they were actually written much, much, much later after Paul wrote his epistles. So the church, the theology of the church is largely Pauline, if that makes sense, because that that is what came first. And he's very much a legalistic kind of... Um, he unpacks all this theology and you can make anything out of Paul's theology. And that's a lot of the sort of political dominion that, that you see in the church. It's not necessarily based on the teachings of Jesus. It's more Paul's theology, you know? So there's a couple of sort of distinctions you need to make in there. Yeah. Well, and I, and I also, there's, there seems to be um, a, a big difference between at least some of the softer, gentler stuff that I tend to yep. associate with my vision of Christ and his yep. dad who was frankly kind of a dick, you know, just a real dick. Yeah, and, uh, there is that, <laughs> the judgment, the hellfire. And that's but, yeah. the thing that people think, oh, there's almost two gods. You know, there's this wrathful, angry God of the Old Testament. He's smiting people and sending floods and fires and, you know, consuming the wicked and all the rest of it. And then in the New Testament, here's this guru, like you said, here's this Jesus. Well, it's this loving, nice, gentle, compassionate God. But actually that God's still there. If you read the Bible, he's just as much, you know, angry, wrathful, going to send you to hell. What about that God? And the problem I have with that God is, you know, when I realized, when I started walking away from the church, I'm like, I can't worship that God anymore. I can't be be worshiping a God who commanded his people to commit genocide and things like that. Um, I, I'm not going to go to church and sing praise and worship song because I believe it's the same God. He hasn't yeah. changed. It's just really messed up when you actually take it to its logical conclusion. I couldn't do it anymore. And I said, no, I can't worship this God. Yeah. Well, and, and I, I think a lot of folks want to cafeteria style, you know, yeah, Old Testament, New Testament, or they often just kick you. Oh no, it's really New Testament. You can't really look at the Old Testament. But yeah. then we look at stuff like I was just mentioning from, you know, things from like Deuteronomy are fueling what's happening right now in, in Israel. Yep. I mean, like there's, there's a lot of Old Testament there, and frankly, it's all supposed to be part of the same the same family of story, right? Like it's all supposed to be part of the same basic idea, and and so if we're now we're going to cafeteria style, so if that means that half of this stuff didn't matter and and can't be taken seriously, then why would the other stuff be serious? You know, and yeah. I mean, I guess I, I I know what you mean. I have a hard time. Um, I, I think when the 
you know, one of the things that I was like, oh my gosh, you know, this idea, I think it's in Matthew, right? Where, uh, you know, if, uh, if you lust after a woman with your head, you've already committed adultery with yeah. her in your heart. Yeah. Right. Um, and yeah, if you think you know, it's it just as much as having physical sex with this woman, right? that's and really messed the, up. That messed me up when I was these, a kid. <laughs> these God given instincts also make me a complete failure in the eyes of God. And that if I even have them, I've already failed. And now I need to beg forgiveness from the guy who crucified his own fucking son and tortured yeah. Job so relentlessly. And, you know, I mean, like, really? I mean, I, now I'm asking yeah. forgiveness from this hateful, vengeful, angry, jealous, you know, man, like you said, I, I can't, I can't live in that world. And the fact is when yeah. I strip it all away, I just don't believe it. I don't believe yeah. this stuff, man. It's not here for me. I'm not, this is not a, I, yeah, I've tried to believe it because I was afraid not to. It's true. I mean, this is something I've, I've had Dr. Marlene Winnell. I talked about her before. She coined that phrase, religious trauma syndrome. And when I, when she was on my podcast, she said, you know, if you look at the typical evangelicals relationship or what they claim is their relationship to God, it's more akin to an abusive partner. So, so you get God, he's the abusive partner who's beating and, you know, subjecting his partner to all kinds of hideous punishments and tortures and things like that. And yet expects that person to turn around and love him in return. That's then that's what that's not the new Testament. It says many places in the new Testament that God inflicts suffering on his followers, on his people, his children, you know, to teach us lessons of faith and to teach us to trust him more. And we're supposed to praise him and thank him. So you see Christians, let's say when a loved one is dying or has cancer or it has a hideous accident or something like that. God, why did you allow this to happen? You must be trying to teach us a lesson of faith. And that's a really yeah. messed up view of, of suffering and the, and God. And I said, same kind of thing. I can't worship a God who visits hor horrible suffering on his children who are just trying to follow him, serve him, love him, whatever. And that's what we get. And we're supposed to love him, you know, when he yeah. inflicts hideous suffering on us. Um, I don't want to be in a relationship with a God like that. Well, and again, it, it's real convenient when you are one of the, you know, followers if whatever happens, there is an easy way to ascribe it to the will of God, you know? Yep. Uh, he moves in mysterious ways, his yep. wonders to behold, right? And, and this, right. there's always yeah, an answer. Yeah, there's always an answer that, that means it's okay. It's all in God's plan. I mean, it's one of the most yep. grossest statements you hear is, oh, it's all in God's plan. God's got a plan, you know? And yeah, we'll and find like, out someday later. Yeah. When we get like, to heaven. People actually say things with their outside mouths, like, man, they, they got us out right before the earthquake, you know, and oh, God really got us out of there and looked out for us. You know, God's really looking out for our family. Like, oh, but what about those other tens of thousands yeah. of people? I guess, fuck them, huh? I guess God <laughs> yeah. thought that they had some lessons to learn or somebody gets in a car accident. The other guy dies, but God took care of me and, and kept me safe. And mm -hmm. oh, but I guess that guy's kid needed to learn self-sufficiency, right? Because he's dead now. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, just... Just gross, man. Don't use your God to justify, man, you know, life is a random collision of happenstance, circumstance, yeah. weather patterns, timing, geography, yeah. and a dash of what we do with it. But man, yeah. it's a lot of fucking randomness. And to try to it's ascribe true. all of this to some benevolent puppet master, some fucking cosmic practical joker up there, just, just stop. There's, there's too much randomness. <laughs> stop it. Yeah, but it, it, that's the whole thing is they're not going to stop. They're not going to stop because to them, it's a it's that ultimate comfort blanket, isn't it? 
why did this hurricane happen? Why did this fire happen? Why did uncle so-and-so die? Why, why, why? God's going to give us an answer someday, Josh, when we get to heaven, it'll all make sense. I mean, that's the ultimate magical thinking, but it's such a great soothing security blanket, isn't it? That we don't understand why these things are happening, but someday we will. It'll all make sense, you know? And so you go, okay, I can see why a person can take refuge in that. It's a comforting belief system, isn't it? That everything has an answer. God is in control. Even though things don't seem to make sense right now, someday we'll find out, you know? And that gives a lot of comfort to people. I mean, when I watched my ex-wife, her, her, when, when we were still married, her father died of a brain tumor. And I, I was there for about six months before he died. And, and he was a Christian. All the people around him were Christians. And, and the, some of the bullshit that came out, why is he, why did he get a brain tumor? Why did he, why is he dying? Why him? He's done nothing but good works. He's a good Christian man, blah, blah, blah. And like you said, some of the answers, you know, well, God just needs another angel in his choir. I guess that's why he called him home, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And you're like, if that gives you comfort, I guess I can understand why you would say such a stupid thing, you know, because it's it sounds comforting right now because we don't know why. Maybe he just got a friggin' brain tumor and that was it. <laughs> it just it happens. Shit happens, yeah. man. You know, we well, don't and, know why. And asking those questions suggests that there's some cosmic equity some cosmic justice that well yeah. he shouldn't get it he's a good guy somebody else deserves that brain tumor because <laughs> they were a real asshole you know like i don't know <laughs> yeah. man a lot of bad stuff happens to good people a lot of good stuff happens to bad people there seems to be a whole heck of a lot of randomness to it i it's i do true, see yeah. it it's a it's a panacea it's a it's a soothing salve yeah, for security our greatest fear of not knowing the mm -hmm. reality is it's okay to not know but we are terrified to not know yeah. uh, or we are terrified maybe of the thing that lies just beyond not knowing is that maybe it is just kind of random and bad shit happens to good folks and good stuff happens to bad folks and man there's a lot of variables in life and and the result is really not often predictable. And that doesn't mean that there's, some, again, this cosmic plan to all of it. We're just afraid and it's okay to be afraid and it's okay to not know. And the fact is, man, my, my actions, my treatment, my words, regardless of what the, whether I believe in some God or not, if I behave and speak and act in the same exact way, I'll get the same results. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter if I'm if I'm doing it because I'm afraid of what God will do if I don't, or if I'm doing it because I want to help other people. You know, I mean, frankly, I'm more I'm more interested in the atheist who wants to be of service than the the Christian who thinks he has to. You know, yeah. I mean, I just it's that's true. what it's that's what's required for you to be helpful. You know, come on. Um, but like you say, you know, going back to what we talked about earlier, I said humanity is incurably religious. I mean, every culture you can see this through in history. You know, if I'm a farmer in ancient Babylon, you know. 500 bc or whatever and my crops fail i i want to find out what why yeah i want an answer so then i then i go to the priest and i say why did the, my crops fail well the gods were angry with you what have you done to anger the gods we need to then find out what you did and then how you can appease the gods so do yeah. this do that offer this sacrifice blah 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 and then you'll be blessed you know and yeah. the next year your crops will succeed you know so you can see that pattern and it's the same thing with my father-in-law dying. Why God? Why? We want answers, 
and Christianity religion, I would say, offers those answers, you know. And I, I was going to say another point about we were talking about how it's not just Christianity. I mean, I read a couple of years ago Chris, Chris, Christopher Hitchens' book, God is Not Great. I don't know if you've read that, but mm -mm. his thesis is basically religion poisons everything. That's the thesis of the book. And he goes through, and it's not just Christianity, he goes through all over the world. He just shows example after example after example of how religion has poisoned everything, human development, health, safety, on and on and on. And you think, my God, it's not just Christianity, it's religion that has poisoned everything and it's held us back in, yeah. in so many ways. You know, that's a great resource, you know, to if, if people are interested in finding out. What's wrong with religion? You know, if you want to believe what you want to believe, that's fine. No, actually, it is damaging. It is harmful. It has done incalculable damage on so many levels. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Preach it. Let's pass the hat. Yeah. Well, and so, and you talked about some of these these penance, right? That uh, you know, yeah. go sacrifice, go sacrifice a goat at the altar on this day. The the Lord finds the odor pleasing, whatever it is. And yeah. these are some more some more Old Testament stuff, and and I just. I, I just am always reminded when I read in my King James Bible that I still still have a pretty old, cool, interesting historical version of a King James Bible that that talks about um, how I can own my Hebrew slaves. It, it literally has an instruction <laughs> yeah. manual yeah. about how long I can keep them. And if I beat them to death, as long as they live, I think it's three days, then the blood's not on my hands. But if they die on the fourth day, that's a God thing. But if they die on the third day, well, then it's my fault. Yeah. And, I mean, it's just this gross, you know, but there are, there's these instructions of oh, yeah. how, to, how to sacrifice, you know, your, your lambs and all that. I mean, yeah, it's just exhaustively. Yeah. Page yeah. after page, chapter <laughs> after chapter. And, and that's, that's this story. That's all part of this same belief system um yeah. and, and hey it includes the creation right it, it includes the creation story i mean we, there are components of the old testament that i don't think most christians are willing to throw in the trash you know it, it is yeah. part of what what they rely on to support the rest of the story is so but but then we really got to disregard the hebrew slave stuff we don't really sacrifice yeah. goats these days i mean it's just sort of how how challenging to the mental gymnastics necessary <laughs> yeah. to to navigate that and it's impressive uh, it really is and you can see it's been a problem throughout history because you know there's a, like you said there's a lot of christians that would say what do we do with the old testament what do we do with passages like that what do we do with passages where god commands his people to commit genocide and stuff like that is yeah. that the same god that we're trying to worship today that's problematic because sure what about what does that say about his character and you know where he's coming from and why would he command his people to do that you know and and well the good news though josh is see jesus came and, and did away with all that that's that's what the evangelical would say that's what i would have said that jesus has done away with the law he's all those things don't matter anymore all those things just pointed to jesus see it showed how how you know flawed it was you couldn't get to God. You couldn't appease your sins by getting, doing sacrifices. But Jesus was the perfect sacrifice, and we don't need all that anymore. So you see, it's everything's solved, and that's why Christians love the New Testament because okay. Jesus is the ultimate answer for everything. He did away with all that, so we don't really need to read the Old Testament anymore. That's all you know, old ancient history now. Jesus was the ultimate Lamb sacrificed at yep. the altar. Yeah. Okay. And that's it. He appeased the wrath of God once for all. So we don't need any of that, you know, so all you got to do is pray the sinner's prayer and you're in, you know, and all their problems are going to be solved. 
But of course, we know that doesn't work because my my own testimony is why did I get baptized three times? <laughs> you know, why such uneven results? It never actually worked for me, even though I spent all of my adult life as a, a Christian, then a pastor, then a Bible college teacher, an academic, a scholar. Um, and in the end, I realized all these things, it didn't work. Why didn't it work for me? It should have worked for me. I did everything right. I even taught it. I preached it. I, I read the Bible. I studied it in Greek and Hebrew. It should have worked for me, but it didn't. Why didn't it? I can't explain that other than to say Christianity is a made-up religion and there is no God. And that's that's my answer. You know, that's <laughs> Which the I conclusion. Accept. I yeah. accept that. Because so it, it doesn't fit the, the pattern. Isn't it in part, did it, didn't it? did it not work in part because of something that is baked into uh, the Christian doctrine, which is that you and I and everyone else will always fall short of the perfection that is God and 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 of the sin free yep. life. And I'm, isn't isn't it already a presupposition that we are constantly failing to live up to this ideal that has been offered us by this awesome uh, God, and that we are just constantly in need of repentance and and salvation and forgiveness, and it's just this servile scraping trudge through life mm -hmm. where we're constantly just not fucking enough. It's like, we've all got daddy issues with God. You know, we're all yep. just competing for dad's love and dad's this angry, <laughs> vengeful God that made us right. But we really fucked it up with that free will thing. You know, it's just, <laughs> man, what a rough go, you know, we're always sinning. We always got to ask for forgiveness. Well, I've got a good friend of mine. He's, his name is Tim Sledge. And he wrote a book. He, we just did a podcast on this not a couple of weeks ago called four disturbing questions with one simple answer breaking the spell of christian belief it's a great book and he, he goes through all these sort of case studies why doesn't it work you know and he said the thing about it is imagine you go out and buy like the new tesla it's the best car that's ever been built it has all the bells and whistles it will do everything you know it's all hyped up and everything you rush out you buy this brand new tesla and when you get the car it doesn't do what it's supposed to do, what they told you on the advertisements and all that. So you take it back to the to the service center. You say, hey, you know, you told me this Tesla would do this, that, and the other thing. It did not. They say, no, you're the problem. You know, when you give it a command, you didn't use the right tone of voice. You didn't do this right. You didn't do that. And every time you take it back and you say, You didn't mean hey, it in your heart. Yeah. <laughs> it's always, it always comes back on you. You're the problem. You're at fault. You're, it's not the car. It's not that it's not, you know, the software, it's you, it's you, it's you. And that's the same thing. And Christianity just doesn't deliver on the hype. And every time you come back and question it though, they say, but, but it's you, you didn't have enough faith. You had unconfessed sin in your life. You had this, that it's your fault. It's your problem. That's why. And people have said that to me when I say, well, I'm not a Christian anymore. I say, well, but you must've done something wrong. You know, God, it wasn't God's fault. So uh, he's never to blame. He always gets something wrong with you. Yeah. And yeah. even when I was a Christian, I, I like that analogy. Yeah, yeah. He he always gets off the hook. You know, every every explanation for genocide and evil and suffering, God is never to blame. It's always somehow on us. He's judging us for our sins or whatever it might be. He's never to blame. He's never at fault. So you can never pin him down. It's it's one of the oddest components of Christianity to me is this constant need to seek forgiveness for what sure seemed to me. Things that an all-knowing, all-powerful, my creator created mm. me would know is <laughs> part of be. the nature that he created me with. And, and you know, some of the things are pretty straightforward. The, the God-given instinct to want to procreate 
that is quite literally necessary for survival of the species. And that seems to me to be a natural born reality and really almost any animal in the animal kingdom um, is somehow this, this gross and, you know, to be avoided and not, not fed. So, you know, this, this weird, so God gives me this thing, but then I'm supposed to, you know, shun it and, and beg forgiveness if I engage it at all, unless it's with my married wife or procreation only. And it's yeah. Don't okay. think about it. Yeah. I mean, you, you try to get that past any fucking 13 year old boy, man. Yeah. Good luck, dude. See you in hell. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry, it's man. True. It's, it's a rough go for a 13 year old <laughs> yeah. trying to live, live in the, in the shadow yeah. of his creator there. So and I do that's have the a thing. Yeah. I have a quick question about a different church. You're now living in England. Yeah. So Henry the eighth, man, let's, mm -hmm. let's talk about, you know, separation of church and state here and here in yeah. my country your old country that, you know, we seem to me to be really actively seeking to legislate religion. We seem to be co-opting religious voters, convincing him, convincing them that these are the policies that will be in alignment with your religious views. So you need to get these leaders in place and you need to support them and they will get these justices on the court. And these justices will further these laws that will be in alignment with your religious ideals. So we're trying to legislate religion, which a lot of religious folks conflate with morality, which it ain't, but that's a whole other topic. So we seem to be trying to marry church and state. You mentioned earlier this idea that, you know, well, we were born of this Puritan, you know, we've got these Christian mm -hmm. roots and yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You Christian know? nationalism. Yeah. And now we're trying to get back to that. We are quite literally trying to remerge church and state. So in, in England, uh, you know, Henry VIII, right. Famously, uh, broke with with the Pope, you know, my understanding is that it was every bit as much because, um, you know, they say it was because he wanted this marriage annulled is is a common yeah. thing. And the Pope wouldn't annul the he marriage. He wanted a divorce. Yeah, uh, absolutely. But also he was pissed because the Pope was gobbling up land and real estate yeah. and getting tithings and getting all this money. And Henry VIII is like, I'm the king, man. Why are you <laughs> yeah. gathering all the wealth and riches and real estate? I'm the king. And so yeah, he actually I should have created, but he created the Church of England. He created yep. a fucking church, which now Prince Charles, if I'm not mistaken, is now the, the king head of Charles. the church. King or, Charles. Sorry, king, king Charles, right, right. Yeah, let's get that right. Head. He's the king now. And I mean, and that seems to like that, that this is how weird this is, right? Like, so, mm -hmm. so your bloodline in this particular case with, with the Church of England, your, your bloodline is what's going to determine your worthiness to head up a, a fairly popular, fairly sizable church because you happen to be born, at, you know, in this succession. And when you were heir to the throne, you're now heir to the church as well. Uh, mm -hmm. Thoughts on that? Thoughts on the Church of England, the split from the Pope, the how... Is that a popular religion over there? Do you see folks that are affiliated with the Church of England over there? Is it? Oh, sure. I mean, you have the Archbishop of Canterbury. He's the, the head of the Church of England. Every once in a while, he'll come out with some pronouncement, and it'll it'll be on the news. But it's nothing like the American scene, for sure. I mean, we don't have a, that evangelical presence in Parliament, which is our government here in this country. Uh, you know, so it's it's nowhere near the levels of hysteria. You know that you have in the states. You know, but you can say, yeah, because you, you look at what King Henry VIII did uh, literally almost the second that the papers were signed and he officially broke from the church, the Catholic Church and founded the Church of England. He seized 
you know, monasteries and lands that the church owned and gave them a lot of them to his cronies as sort of payment payback to say, hey, thanks for backing me on this thing. You know, so here, here's a, here's a former monastery. You get all this land, you get all these, you know, and rich farmlands. I mean, they had some of the best, you know, acreage all over the country. So, you know, that, that shows you kind of cynically where he's coming from. Like you said, the, one of the first things he did was to seize all these, some of them just got broken down and, and fell into ruins, you know, but the, the rich fat cats basically gobbled up all these rich lands that the, these monasteries and abbeys and stuff were sitting on, you know, so that shows you maybe what his motivation was aside from being able to get a divorce. Cause that was the thing that the church of England said, well, we'll grant you a divorce, <laughs> you know, sure. You can have a divorce with disastrous results. It didn't really work at all in the end. Yeah. Well, and you say, and it's, it's, I'm sure it's a, a great thing that, that currently due to the, the current parliamentary system in England, you know, that the monarchy is sort of this over there, largely symbolic, wields yeah, a lot of soft figurehead. power. You figurehead, they wield some soft power, but they're not actively legislating. No, no. But back in King Henry VIII's time, they absolutely, oh, absolutely were. They yeah. were the legislation. They were everything, right? Yeah. I mean, and so this was a, you know, church and state were one thing. Um, and now that that whole thing has kind of slid over to the side, it's just a fascinating little oddball relic of, of of a few things monarchies anybody can start a church apparently i mean just these just these weird yeah. like if, if as long as you're a king yeah you know you got yeah. you got to have that but what's happening here is as you cross europe really is that the religious population is slowly literally dying out i read a study when i was still kind of a teacher i applied for a job for the church in wales which is used to be the church of england but it was the welsh version and they kind of broke off anyway. And they did a massive study about 10, 12 years ago. And they realized, they said, our population in the church in Wales is physically dying out. It's about 70, 75 uh, years of age, the average, you know, attendee of a, of a Welsh church. And within 20 to 30 years, if we don't replace them with new blood, as it were, they're going to be gone. We won't have a church. We won't, there won't be one anymore. You know, so that's kind of the trend that's going on in this country is that you go into a cathedral and there's there's nobody in the place. I mean, it's it's a beautiful thing. It's a it's a museum piece and all that because it's from medieval times. But there's there's hardly anybody that actually goes to the service, and they're literally physically dying out. And that's happening all across Europe. You can go in into any church, and there'll be you know half a dozen people in there on a Sunday for the service, and then that's it you know so yeah. at some point it's going to literally physically die out I, I have a couple more questions for and we'll wrap it up but i'm i i am curious while i have you plant i'm sure i'm grateful for you joining us um passive propagation of of religion you know um parents that what the heck i could use an hour free on sunday morning drop their kids at the local church for sunday school or um, hey, we've joined the church softball league or we joined the church, you know, bingo thing or whatever it is, you know, because it's it's got a good sense of community or we go to Sunday services because it's a good sense of community. We don't really believe, but, you know, it's a nice community and we meet other people, make some yeah. business contacts. Yeah. Networking. Networking. Um, yeah. I Get guess. to meet your neighbors. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of sad, right? Because it does seem like church provides a great little opportunity mm -hmm. for a lot of things that really should be available without the religious overtone. But yeah. what do you, what's your view on sort of what sure seems like a 
passive incidental indoctrination into this into this thing that I believe you have clearly described during this pod as damaging. Yeah, and- it is. But I would say, see, again, going back to my time as an evangelical, none of those things that you described were seen as passive. And in fact, they're church growth strategies. So from the church's point of view, that softball league, the bingo night, the you know, v- vacation Bible school, the Sunday school, they all seem like, and they are fun activities. It's fun to go play softball. I love sure. playing softball. You know, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with it is the church, that is an outreach arm of the church. They're looking at it as this is a way to build bridges into our community to get people in the door. We're going to build relationships with these people on the softball team. We're going to build relationship with on the bingo night and all these other activities that we offer up free for the community. It's a wonderful service that we're offering, you know, food kitchens and everything else. They're great, but you're actually bringing people in by building relationships, inviting them to church, at which point they're going to hear the gospel message. So it's not just a benign, fun little program. It's actually an outreach arm of the church. That's what it is. Because we did it when I was a pastor of my church, we 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 had an after school youth program in my church in Portland, in Oregon, and that was exactly the way that was designed: bring the neighborhood kids in after school, provide games, provide fun, computers, a little coffee shop, snacks. It was all wonderful, and they loved it. They really did. But eventually, they would start coming to church. They started joining our youth group. The parents started coming to church, and that was the aim of the whole thing was it was yeah. an outreach 100%. So it's not benign. There is an agenda behind what you see on the softball team. Yeah. So is Christianity a cult? I would say that it, it's not a monolith. I would say that there are many, many aspects of it that are cult-like or cultish. So this is something I've done a lot of episodes and, and research on that a lot of churches use cult psychology and use cult tactics on their followers. I can look in my life and say with 100% certainty that there's a number of things I can point to that were absolutely cult tactics that were used on me and had an effect on me psychologically and in other ways. You know, A good resource is Dr. Robert J. Lifton, his book, Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism. He has eight markers of cults. And what I've done, I've done a couple of episodes on this. I've gone through each one of the eight, and I've shown how in evangelicalism, each one of those is used on the followers, the members of churches with damaging effects. You know, not every church is a cult, but a lot of churches are very cult-like, or as Amanda Montel, her book is called Cult-ish. So there are a lot of things that can be cult-ish, but without necessarily being a cult but they have a lot of the same characteristics. So you got to judge each one on a case-by-case basis, but you need to do your research, I think, for sure on that one. Yeah. Follow-up question. Is Mormonism a cult? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> but then so so is many aspects of Christianity. Sure. You know, it's just, it's a case, what it is, is you look at it, it's a, it's a, a continuum. It's a sliding scale. So this is something that Dr. Stephen Hassan talks about He's he's called the cult expert. He, re, he used to be a, a former Mooney, and he talks about this influence continuum. Certain groups have are more controlling than others. Some are less controlling than others. So it's like if you're a follower of a slightly less controlling group, it will do damage to you, but it's like you receive a slightly lesser dosage, as it were. But if you're in a full-on cult, 
then you're getting a big heavy dose of the control and it does more damage to you you know so it's a think of it as a scale or a continuum of control or influence some are more harmful some are less harmful but they are still harmful at the end of the day it's just to what extent basically so i want to ask you um I, I do a sort of a version of what's your favorite. Um, and so to, <laughs> to keep it exciting, I want to <laughs> ask, um, Clint, what is your, uh, what is your favorite myth supported by the Bible or what is your favorite sort of thing that people think is in the Bible that isn't, or what is your favorite thing that people point to the Bible to justify? Oh, I think uh, Noah's Ark, the story of Noah's Ark. I love that one. Cause you're when telling me that didn't happen? Big giant boat, <laughs> yeah. all the animals. What? Yeah. I used to believe it 100, but when I now that I've done the research, um, you go, that's absolutely unsustainable on every possible level, zoologically, scientifically, and on and on and on. Uh, Ricky Gervais does a whole thing on this. You know, it's it's really funny when you watch his his bit, but you know that that's one of those cherished beliefs that I had to give up. You know, as a when I was an evangelical, I used to preach it and teach it and all that. But yeah, it's a, it's a complete myth. It, there's no way it could have happened. Well, and what's funny to me is even if you could have somehow gotten one of each animal on the boat and they were all going to procreate later and that was all going to work and they're going to hang out harmoniously while you were on the boat. And then you yep. get to where exactly are you going? Like, and how is this new place going to be the perfect habitat for every single yeah. species in the world on yeah. that, you know, and it's all fertile and it's all ready to feed. Yeah. I mean, we were just underwater. Everything was just underwater. Now it's yeah. all just ready to go. Just like you meet this. It works for perfect, some, but not for all. Yeah. yeah. How do the animals that live ex that are from exclusively Australia that are found nowhere else in the world? How did they get from there to Noah's Ark and back? Or, you know, there's a whole, there's so many questions, isn't there? Just a couple holes in the plot line. That's all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just, so we got to give that one up, I think. What is your, uh, what is your favorite perversion of Christianity? Uh, those who claim Christ as opposed to those who are Christ-like. I would say that we kind of talked about it. It's the whole dominion theology piece. That's a big perversion of Christianity where you're, you're, this Christian right sort of agenda is driven by this thing called dominion theology where it's taken from Genesis. You know, you're going to have dominion over the earth. They've taken it. They perverted that to say it's not about the environment. It's about political dominion. We are going to take dominion over the world. We're going to Christianize America and the world. You know, this is what Jeff Charlotte's that documentary, The Family on Netflix. If people haven't seen that, that's kind of what this is about. You know, so to me, that is a big perversion of Christianity. What is your favorite thing about or your favorite result of untethering yourself from organized religion after so many years? I would say it's getting my agency, you know, getting a sense of agency. And that's a huge thing. When I realize I am a hundred percent responsible for my choices, my actions, I'm willing to take the consequences of whatever it is I decide and whatever it is I do, but I am responsible for myself, whatever, and whatever that means. And that is my sense of agency that I have discovered, recovered. I never had it actually when I was a Christian. So I've, I've discovered it and recovered it, whatever you want to say. Uh, that's you. I don't pray to God. I don't read the Bible. I don't feel the need to do any of that anymore. Whereas as an evangelical, that was my entire life. I didn't make any decisions without reading the Bible, without praying, without talking to the pastor, without, you know, wise counsel from Christian friends and all that. I would, I could be paralyzed for months or years before making a decision. 
And now I just, I weigh up the options. I talk to people. I, you know, talk to my girlfriend and I make a decision and you take a risk and you, you whatever comes with that is what happens. You know, yeah. shit happens. Man. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. You make the best informed decision you can and you, you just roll with it, you know? And so that's, that's where I feel, I feel like I'm, I'm a hundred percent authentically me. I don't wear a mask. What you see is exactly what you get. And that's because I have this sense of agency and that's how I live my life. Nice. Um, so on that note, um, I want to thank you, uh, Clint Haycock, for joining us today. Again, you guys, uh, Clint hosts the Mind Shift podcast. Um, he is currently writing a book um, called Baptism, Third Time's a Charm, My Story of Deconversion from Christianity. Um, super smart guy, super engaging. It's been absolutely delightful to, to talk to you. I want, uh, our listeners to know, I'm going to put in the liner notes, some links to some relevant, uh, content of Clint. So you can follow him and, uh, and, and stay in touch with what he's doing right now. And I can't thank you enough for joining us today, Clint, and being on the pod with us. Yeah, it's been great. In fact, I was going to say, Josh, I want to return the favor. I want to have you on my show at some point. So we'll figure it out maybe after the holidays. I don't know. It's a bit crazy this time of year, but I would love to return the favor. So anytime you want to be on Mindship Podcast, let's do it. I love it. I can't wait. Thank you so much for being with us, Clint. You have a you have a good evening over there, okay? Thank you. Take care. We'll see you again. All right. Bye-bye.